ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, abundant and cheap power is one of the foundations of modern civilization and its uh, economies. Following the Industrial Revolution from the 19th century on, suddenly power drawn from fossil fuels meant accelerating and supercharged industrialization, electrification across the continents and improved living standards for billions. It's continued, but current changes in energy markets, perhaps the most significant for a long time, have big implications for society in the broadest sense. It is, isn't it, the great debate of our times. Where's the energy going to come from? Can renewables and alternative energy really replace fossil fuels to ensure the global population won't have to endure significant drops in living standards? It is the great question hanging over the future of humans on this planet. Sadia Das is a former banker and author and deep thinker is with us again tonight. His books have included his 2021 uh, publication, A Banquet of Consequences, Reloaded, How We Got Into the Mess We're In and How and Why We Need to Act Now. His latest set of essays is called Energy Destinies, and he is with us again once more on the program. Das, good evening. Welcome again back to Nightlife. Good evening, Philip. Let's start with this issue of energy dependence. Do you, do you think people understand the extent to which energy underpins our modern civilization and economic prosperity? Um, up to a point, I think they do, because I think they notice it more in its absence, because they know it's necessary for things like lighting, cooling and heating, transportation. And so they sort of feel it when it's not there. But I think there are subtler things which they probably don't really think about, which is if you don't have power, you can't pump water. If you don't have power, your sewage system wouldn't work. And I think there's another thing. I always talk about embedded energy. Everything around you, wherever you are at the moment and you look around, everything is embedded energy. Hmm. Cement, the bricks, the glass, the steel, the aluminium, concrete required enormous amounts of energy to extract the minerals and then to process it. And little things like the things we eat, you know, people don't really relate to the energy use in that, but the actual fertilizer, which is basically ammonia-based, requires enormous amounts of energy. And people don't realize about 2% of the world's annual energy consumption relates to ammonia. And all the chemicals we use, the bitumen on the road, all the plastics, every piece of plastic uses basically some sort of fossil fuels. I mean, the, uh, it was quite interesting. The other day I was watching a film clip on mm. the news about people at a concert waving their mobile phones around with the lights on and filming and so forth. And it was quite a big concert. There would have been probably 10,000 people. Let's assume 5,000 people are waving their phones around, recording, and then obviously uploading it to their social media. That's an enormous amount of power that's being used. And data storage and transmission, which we take for granted, consumes probably 2 to 3%. We completely take it for granted, don't we? Absolutely. I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who actually said, what is life but organized energy? I think Mm. people missed that point somewhere. Mm. Yes, even to the turning on of a light. I remember once uh, years ago, uh, someone said to me, oh, you don't, don't worry about, you know, you don't have to turn the lights off because, you know, lights really, they just cost nothing. (laughs) And there's this, there's there was a sense that it's just abundant and available and, a thing as though it's always been there. But of course it's not just, 
it's it's almost you know generationally close to when it wasn't there, isn't it? Oh, very much so. It's only in the last 100, 150 years that mm. we've taken energy used to the level we have and we take it for granted. Mm. The population of the world's growing, so the demand for energy is also increasing. Although at some point the population of the world is going to level out, we're being told. But mind you, the demand for energy is going to increase perhaps exponentially until that point, isn't it? Well, I think there's two components to it. One is the population, and the second is the amount of energy individuals use. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Since the 1950s, global population has increased by roughly three times, roughly, give Mm -hmm. or take. But energy use has increased by over six times. And there's two reasons for that. One is obviously the number of people, but the second thing is the people use more and more energy because everything we use uses energy. And part of that is linked to what people call the north-south divide between developed countries and uh, underdeveloped or less developed countries, which is most of the energy use we've seen is in developed countries. Now, the problem is some of these countries use 100 times the amount of energy than, say, some of the poorest countries. And over time, if that inequality balances out and the less developed countries start to use more and more energy, then the population part may well flatten and come down, but the per capita use goes up. So that is one of the conundrums that we have to face. And to some extent, we've also offset that by becoming more efficient and using energy. But overall, if you look at the forecasts, Nobody, but nobody is predicting that somehow energy use is going to be falling anytime no. soon. No, that's an interesting point because, after all, uh, lesser developed countries say to developed countries in the West, well, you've pulled yourself out of where you were to the level you are at, and that's exactly the process which we are undertaking now. And there is no agreement whatsoever, is there, as to whether the whether living standards in the developed world will decline uh, or there is any capacity for energy use, as you say, in the lesser developed parts of the world to reach the point at which, say, advanced capitalism is reached in Europe and the United States? I always use a very simple analogy. It's like a pie. And if you want to keep your share of the pie and other people want more, there's only two ways you can accommodate that. One is the pie has to keep getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, you're going to have to give up some of your share. And that's the debate when you cut through all of the stuff. That's exactly. the debate that we're having. But we don't want to admit that. And to be very honest, when you've got 192 countries just agreeing the size of the table and the shape of the table to have these discussions, never gets to a base one. Mm. Traditionally, of course, we've met energy needs from fossil fuels. All this, although this, in a, in a, centres relatively recent uh, as well, Uh, that is the large-scale use of fossil fuels. Uh, We recognise the danger of this for climate change and global warming. Even with the best will in the world, though, uh, isn't the push for renewables and alternatives to fossil fuels kicking in, and doesn't this mean that the world will have endless energy? Well, I think there's a couple of points to be made uh, about that. You're quite correct. The energy demand has been historically met by fossil fuels, particularly over the last couple of hundred years. Mm. But it's important to recognize that it's changed because originally it was coal, then it moved to oil, and now it's gas and 
and oil, basically, which does it. And what we're talking about with renewables is kind of a perverse process because we're going back to the pre-fossil fuel period when we used biofuels like burning wood or wind energy or human energy. So we're going backwards to some degree. Mm. But to be honest, I do not see fossil fuels, which now make up about 80%, declining that significantly in the short run. And the reason for this is very simple. The renewables generate electricity. And electricity makes up around about 20% of the total energy mix. Because electricity, while it's a marvelous, marvelous energy source, has its problems. For instance, it's not good for certain types of industry. It's actually not good for certain types of transportation. So I do not see renewables anytime soon replacing fossil fuels for certain types of applications. And to do that, you need to actually change the entire industrial structure of our civilization so that things like cement and steel, which we depend on, will have to be made in different ways. Mm. And we are not at the stage in our scientific development where that's either entirely feasible or even if it's feasible, it's not feasible on a cost-effective basis. Mm. Now, let's talk about that in a moment. That That is very interesting. We've talked uh, on the program in the past about issues like concrete, for example, which are much harder to solve than people, I think, generally realise. I mean, it's fashionable now to talk about the energy transition as though it's just a simple thing uh, from moving away from fossil fuels to renewables. I mean, the th- the term, as you say, seems to mean many things and different things to many people. What what do you think it actually means? Well, I think it's just a, a major structural shift in your energy system. That's all it means. But actually, the most interesting thing is there's a dichotomy between what it's used by, by people who know, scientists, and policymakers. Mm. It's a completely different debate. To a scientist, it's a very complicated process of rejigging your entire energy structure. And to a politician, it's a slogan. Yes. Because essentially, uh, as we, as you know, we don't do anything anymore. We just announce things and have slogans. <laughs> so the energy transition is a very convenient slogan. Problem fixed. We have the energy transition. Uh, to me, it's a bit like the use of the word sustainable, isn't it? Once, <laughs> once you start saying it, of course, you fix the problem. Exactly. And uh, everything, everything these days is sustainable. All companies have sustainable policies. So Absolutely. So therefore, the, it's anything all about sustainability is it in itself is not sustainable. No, no, no. Exactly. They're not, I mean, energy transitions, it's not the first time in human history that we've had them. Looking in history, we've seen a few, haven't we? Oh, absolutely. We've gone from biofuels like wood to water and wind energy, then we've gone to fossil fuels. But there is actually a very interesting difference this time around. Firstly, we're trying to do it very quickly. All Mm. these transitions of the past have taken half a century, give or take. Mm. Whereas now we basically want to do this in like 10 or 15 years, but also it's a very different transition. Firstly, the scale is unprecedented because when we did the previous transitions, the world wasn't what it is today. And we're trying to rearrange the energy requirements for 8 billion people, uh, which use a lot of energy for industrial and household needs. The second thing is every one of those transitions in the past moved from 
less efficient to more efficient sources of energy. And the interesting thing is this time around, it's moving to less efficient sources with much poorer energy physics. And this time the cost of energy will go up. And the other thing is, and I can understand the urgency because it's based around not energy, it's based around the emissions from how we generate the energy. And we, there's a real urgency in trying to actually do this quickly. But the other thing which people forget is last few times we did the energy transitions, like when we moved to oil, mm. there were very, very limited regulatory structures like, you know, there were no environmental controls, there were no safety controls, there were no competition standards. So if you go back to the history of the oil industry and how it started, it polluted everything inside, which we won't be able to do this time around. And the other thing is this time around, the societal and geopolitical arrangements are going to be disrupted in a way which probably it wasn't in the past. So yes, it's the same. B, it's completely different. Mm. Yes. The, as you say, <clears throat> electrification uh, is also touted as, oh, well, that's the answer to everything. But just explore some of that in a bit more depth here. It's, it's, it's not, is it? The, uh, electricity won't solve the problem of, of global uh, air transport, for example, or even domestic air transport, really. It doesn't really, it doesn't really solve the problem of shipping, for example. And that's just the beginning. No, absolutely. Because essentially, electricity is fine for certain applications. And as we were talking earlier, it makes up less than 20% of the current energy mix. Mm. And particularly in, I think, three or four areas, some of which you've identified, which is heavy transportation. Fossil fuels have considerable advantages because of the amount of energy released from a small weight or mass of of the actual resource. And the other one is heavy industry, which is things like manufacturing, steel, you mentioned cement, ammonia, mm. and plastics. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how complicated that gets. For instance, in making steel, there are techniques available which bypass fossil fuels, but they consume 15 times more energy than the equivalent current coking coal process. Mm. And it also requires much purer iron ore to actually make the steel. So it's actually quite challenging. And I'm not sure that people actually have the science at an advanced enough and economic enough stage to do that. And besides which, even if you manage to electrify the process, let's go back to cement. Around half the carbon dioxide in the cement manufacturing process comes from the pure conversion of limestone to what we call clinker. Mm. And th that's not going to go away. And we have to modify the basic chemistry. And the last time I looked, I think Captain James Scott on the Starship Enterprise <laughs> was correct when he said, you know, to Captain Kirk, you can't change the basic structure of physics and chemistry. And mm. I think that's what we're struggling with. And so even if we manage to progress further down the electrification, we need to change all of those processes to get a pathway to decarbonization which is feasible. Mm. Yes, exactly. And as, as what you've pointed out and others have too, I don't think may, many people also realise the extent to which, say, for example, the world's plastics industry is dependent on oil uh, and its fractionation for 
for substances which are then used to manufacture plastics, even though plastics itself may be a problem. It's, they have spectacularly changed our lives and their use, is, I mean, their use and deployment is ubiquitous. And without fossil fuels, they're not easily made, are they? No, and, and we have to completely change the material structure of our world. We can't use plastics. We have to find something else for right. it, hmm. which has the same properties. And it's not that easy to find things which have the same properties. And it, it is a challenge. And to some extent, the energy transition is focusing on a tiny bit of that, which is renewables, hmm. without really looking at the bigger picture. And I think that's going to come back to haunt us over time. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Das uh, about energy in the world, energy destinies, where we're at. We're talking about electrification, the energy transition in the world. The the depth of the complexity of this energy transition, which we're trying to achieve in a generation for something that took hundreds of years to get to in the first place. I'm talking about the widespread deployment of, of fossil fuels. Uh, the thing about power, Das, it comes down to science, energy, physics, and so on, Talk to me about the concept of EROEI, that is energy return on energy invest, invested. This is quite an important concept when we're talking yeah. about transition, isn't it? Absolutely, because essentially uh, it's a ratio, and it's a ratio of the usable amount of energy that you can deliver from some resource relative to the amount of energy you have to put in. Because people forget when we go to extract oil or gas, it requires energy to extract it. Then it takes energy to transport it. It takes energy to process it. Then it takes energy to convert it into something else. So that whole process requires energy along it. So one way to think about it is if you put one unit of energy, how much do you get out on the other side? And clearly it has to be more than one because otherwise the whole thing doesn't make sense. And there are huge debates about this among experts, but nobody knows what the right ratio or what the minimum ratio is of that EROEI, the energy return on energy invested. Some people say you have to have at least three times energy coming out. Some people say it has to be five or seven times what the energy you put in. And the problem for us as a civilization, is that fossil fuels and things like uh, uh, nuclear energy, for instance, have massive EROIs compared to, say, solar or wind or the renewables that we're talking about. And the other problem we also have, even within fossil fuels, that the EROEI is not constant. So, for instance, if you look at the EROEI of oil, if you go back to the time of Rockefeller, it was probably 100. So for one unit you put in, you got 100 units out. Mm. But that means for, it's only 1% of the oil being extracted was being consumed to extract it. But in the 1950s, it came down to about 30. And it's currently around probably somewhere between 15 and 20. I'll give you a very good example of that. We were recently traveling in Brazil, and Brazil have these massive offshore oil fields known as the Lula Fields after the, uh, the president of Brazil. Mm. Now, 
it's under about 20,000 feet. I may be wrong on that, but it's like 20,000 feet of water. Then there is a layer of salt and the oil is underneath that. And to extract that requires an enormous amount of work. And that has basically an EROI of somewhere between three and five compared to 100 of the oil that was being extracted in the United States 150 years ago. And the question is, what happens as we move from high EROEI to low EROEI sources? And essentially, this is known by a rather lovely term. It's known as the energy cliff. At a certain point in time when EROEI declines, then modern societies and economies can't function. Hmm. And that, that is something that is, I do not see debated at all outside of a very narrow group of physicists. No, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you. There's almost, that's right, there's a, very, there's a highly simplistic view, isn't there, that, that uh, if we just invest in renewables, all will be well. But as we've just discussed, that isn't, that isn't the case. Because renewables will well, renewables will solve part of the problem. They may solve the problem of household consumption, for example, but they're not going to solve all the problems of heavy transportation or industrial or the industrial processes that we uh, that ordinary life depends on. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I did some research on this, and what I tried to work out was exactly what part renewables make up. Hmm. of global energy. Now, between 2011 and 2021, so it's relatively recent, renewable energy increased from 20% to 28%, not of total global energy, but of global electricity supply. And remember, global electricity is only 20% of total energy usage. So, if you actually look overall, although it's that's, a, that's at the moment, I mean, obviously that, I mean, sure. obviously the goal is to increase that huge. It's not as though twenty percent is the ceiling on that, is it? No, no, no. But the point is, we have, the best way to describe it is we have a long, long way, way to, to go. go. Yeah. And the second thing is that the capacity, in terms of its physics, of renewable energy sources to replace these fossil fuels is affected by a whole bunch of things. One we were just talking about is how do we electrify certain processes. The other is the energy return on energy invested is much lower than fossil fuels. But there are other issues as well, like the sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow. And this is the problem of intermittencies. But there are other issues as well. The thing about coal or oil or gas, which is convenient, is you can transport it, build a power plant next to where you need it, which is what we call the co-location issue. It's highly dense and it doesn't use a lot of land mass to do that. So all of those things have to be factored in. And the problem is we are a long way short of solving all of those problems to be able to say that renewables are going to be a big part of the solution. At the moment, I, I think the best way to put renewables into context, it's, there's a lot of virtue signaling in mm. renewables, but that's, it's not going to be the answer. The imperative, of course, is that we, we have to cease burning fossil fuels. The scientists tell us this. We, we have to do that as, as, as much as is humanly possible. Renewables are obviously going to step in and, and, and fill a part of that. As you say, the intermittency problem is 
is a serious one. That's why we we talk about power storage and Snowy Hydro too, and hydro schemes. And there's currently huge investment in battery storage. Is that going to deal with it? Do you think? It's very expensive. <laughs> it's very very expensive. And while the costs have come down hugely. There are some real issues about the battery storage. I'll give you an example of why uh, it's so difficult. Uh, you'll remember the the Tesla big battery in South Australia yeah. that was built. Mm. And that's fine. There, there's really no issue with that and it's very, very useful. But it doesn't provide storage for very long. No. It, it's a very short period of time. And uh, you will notice that even those limits were not reached. And the operator of that, I think, uh, if memory serves me correctly, ran into some problems with the regulator and was fined for not being able to meet its performance standards. And if you actually look at really big countries, the amount of storage you're going to need is hugely, hugely complicated. And it's going to require you to effectively rejig the entire energy grid to actually achieve that. Uh, And the best way to think about this is just use a very simple analogy. The energy equivalent of one kilogram of hydrocarbons like oil requires 70 kilograms of the best currently available batteries. And while that will improve over time, it's still a long way short of what's needed. And To give you another comparison, a barrel of oil, which is about 160 litres, I think, Hmm. weighs about, what, 160 kilograms or something like that. And you can store it in a $20 tank. The energy equivalent requires 9,000 kilos of lithium batteries, which cost upwards of $100,000. Yep. (laughs) Das is with us. We're talking about energy and where we are going. Nevertheless... Nevertheless, uh, unless we do something, we are we are doomed. We're we're told is is actually the part of this energy transition that we are actually going to have to face the fact that we're going to have to use less. Well, it's actually funny you should mention that because what has puzzled me for the last fifteen years is the energy debate. It's a complex debate, mm. but there are two parts to it. One is supply. And second is demand. All our efforts are on supply. We never talk about demand Demand. in terms of why don't we ameliorate demand? And the second thing is on the supply side, there are two separate issues. One is the climate issue. Clearly, we cannot continue to burn fossil fuels at the rate we're doing. And the second issue, which people often gloss over, is the fossil fuels are finite. And if you look at the reserves of those fossil fuels, they're running they're not out. Bad. Of, they're running out in a very short time, though, aren't they? Exactly. You're talking about fifty to hundred years. Hmm. So essentially, there are these four debate, four things that we need to sort of think about. And the way to start this would be to say, well, okay, if we have the supply within the constraints we have and how much we can burn, what is the supply? And then maybe we ought to think about adjusting our demand to that. But the problem is, if we do that our lifestyles, our living standards, economic activity would drastically have to be retrenched. And that is not something that anybody in any shape or form 
wants to contemplate. And part of the reasons we've gotten into this sort of virtue signaling of renewables and everything else and climate agreements is everybody involved in the debate knows in their heart of hearts is there are issues like we've got to uh, look at how we reduce the population of the earth. We need to look at how we basically cut back energy use per capita but nobody wants to actually talk about them because they will be accused of being, you know, Luddites who That's want to right. live in caves and eugenists who want to wipe out half of humanity because those are the terms that have been used about me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you. There, there's another thing too which I think people often – gloss over as though, oh, well, that's not important. That's just, you know, we'll have to deal with that, which is the question of stranded assets. That oh, is yes. all the, oh, yes. the massive investment that exists and loans and structures that surround fossil fuel generation. Oh, absolutely. What's going to, ha- what's going to happen to all of that? I mean, you can't, well, you can't simply pretend that it doesn't exist. Well, I raised this question many years ago uh, when I was looking at a bank's balance sheet. They'd asked me to do some work on that. I said, well, okay, you know, you have these loans to fossil fuel generation plants and mines and so forth. What happens if, you know, climate change regulations get much tougher? What will happen to them? And they looked at me quite blankly. This is about 10 years ago. But I have looked at this. It's about $25 trillion, which is about a quarter of everything the earth produces in it in a year, but probably more like about probably 10 to 15% of global wealth is tied up in global fossil fuel assets. And those will be obviously reduced substantially in value. Hmm. And institutional investors, pension funds have holdings of shares in these uh, energy concerns. They own the debt of these concerns and banks have made loans to them. I'm not sure anybody actually has ever really sat down and said, well, what do we do with that? And how do we actually avoid a a wealth transfer or a wealth loss of major proportions when we do this? It's not part of the debate at all. Every once in a while, the central banks pop up and say, well, you know, banks should take into account this. And then they go away for another five years and come back and say that again. But it's just (laughs) completely absent from the debate. I don't know if you think about it. I, I suppose to some degree coal generators, uh, coal power generators are already factoring this in. In An investment in coal power generators are already factoring this in, aren't they? They are, and there's a, there's a bit of that going on. But I think there's a lot of what I would call wishful thinking in all of mm. this. Mm. And part of that is they're saying, oh, look, you know, these stranded assets can be repurposed. And, you know, some of the thermal electric assets are going to be changed to biomass or hydrogen, or they can be used for energy storage or managing grid performance to ameliorate the stranded asset losses. It's part of, you know, uh, the what I call the uh, uh, click here to save the world type of approach, where basically we've all assumed that technology will save us. But there will be losses here. That That's the bottom line. I don't know the exact amount of those losses. But they will be substantial, mm. and nobody really takes that into account. Mm. What do you make of the hype over the of the potential for hydrogen? This is in the context of I think everyone recognises that electricity is one thing, but as we've discussed, it can't solve uh, it can't solve it can't solve significant uh, parts of energy requirement. So we need a new source of energy, and people say, "Well, yes, that's green hydrogen." 
Look, I think hydrogen is very useful because uh, originally, uh, sorry, let's back up a stage. Hydrogen is a store of energy. Mm. So what you need is basically some sort of, of power and you're quite correct, renewable energy or green energy, which can produce hydrogen by electrolyzing water, separating the hydrogen atom from the oxygen, would provide a basic fuel, which has huge advantages. And But at the moment, we don't see much green hydrogen. Most of the hydrogen that we are actually seeing comes from things like thermal coal or natural gas. Yeah, green hydrogen costs. Green hydrogen requires enormous amounts of electricity to produce. That's Correct. The problem. So that's the first problem. But the second problem is it's highly inefficient because there's huge energy losses between Mm. the electrolysis of water to liquefaction and compression of the hydrogen and then conversion back to electricity. But the bigger problem is that hydrogen has a high energy content per unit mass, but at room temperature and at atmospheric pressures, it has very low energy content. So essentially, it has to be pressurized or put into cyrogenic tanks, which is very cold tanks. And one of the interesting analysis of that is if you had uh, a long-haul aircraft fueled by hydrogen, the tanks would take up the entire space of an existing plane. So it couldn't carry anything. And the other thing don't forget is what I always call remember the Hindenburg, which is hydrogen has very low ignition points and it's got high combustion energy and it leaks very easily. So... Essentially, it's quite a dangerous fuel to be using. Mm. So you have to have very careful control of supply chain and storage and its use. And that's all going to be very, very expensive. And there's a classic story that the ABC ran in Melbourne. And uh, I think a, a security company has converted its cars to hydrogen. But the problem is the only place they can get refueled is at the Toyota facility, I think it is. And they can only produce a certain amount of hydrogen using their solar panels. So they can do like six cars, which isn't really going to solve the problem in the short term. No, Toyota have invested in, in hydrogen uh, to a point, but that's right. There are, it's, it's a long way from being a deployable fuel that's that's available at, 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 at what we would expect to at what we would expect to be reasonable cost. But we are to, the the other technologies, of course, that are proven, and that's I suppose nuclear power generation is a proven technology. Although we're told that it's the most expensive way at the moment of producing electricity, as opposed to renewables, and that's that will curb investment in it. I think nuclear has to be part of the debate. I have never understood the fear of nuclear, and I do understand the concern about... Well, it's its cost, the, isn't it? It's, it's expensive. Well, it's cost, but it's also the danger of a Chernobyl or a Fukushima. Mm. And so there is both the safety issue and the cost. But the cost, to a large extent, you have to take into account by looking at some of the externalities, which is the low emissions. And for basic baseload power, which is to get around the problem of intermittency, nuclear would offer an option. And there are newer technologies being talking, talked about, which are not really new technologies. They're going back to technologies of the 50s. But essentially, that has to be part of the debate because we are not in the world of perfection. We're in the world of the least awful solutions. Mm. And nuclear may have to be part of that debate. 
but at the moment there is a complete problem and it's part of the uh the problem of nimbys which is not in my backyard everybody likes the idea of nuclear as long as the waste and the plant itself is nowhere near you mm. and obviously it can't be uh, away from everybody and that's the bigger problem that we have mm. the way we live of course is dependent on energy use we you know we 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 travel when we feel like it we drive cars to wherever we want to go it's not actually feasible is it to think that people could be uh, in, persuaded to a world where those sort of choices couldn't be made anymore. I mean, in the early 19th century, you couldn't do this. Most people could no, never dream of of travelling very far to anywhere. Well, actually, there's a, there's a little bit of a misnomer here. Uh, uh, as you know, I do travel to strange parts of the world in mm. pursuit of my other passions. And the most interesting thing is most of the people I encounter in in poorer countries, in rural parts of that area, never ever leave that for their entire lives. Their lives are circumscribed by a tiny, tiny radius. And they are very, very much low per capita energy users. And so it is possible to live that way. But I think the problem is in advanced societies, we obviously have gone into a completely different sort of uh, expectation cycle. And to a large extent, this is part of a societal contract that we now have. The social contract in advanced economies and increasingly in developing economies is between the population and the politicians is it relies on uninterrupted, unlimited and cheap power that underpins living standards. And to give you an idea of how important that is, is you just have to look at the energy cost debate that's going on all around you. I would actually argue that energy costs are very low, given that they're a scarce resource, given that they're polluting, and given that if we stretch them out over a civilization's life, we're burning them at far too quick a a rate. But you can't have that debate because, you know, the availability of energy, personal mobility, you know, information use is completely off the agenda. I mean, in Europe, Gas cooking and coal or wood-fired pizza ovens are apparently sacrosanct. They had to be carved out of energy legislation. <laughs> well, of course they do, Das. <laughs> what well, of, I'm partial to a nice what pizza. Sort of, what sort of world I, are you talking about? I thought about? that was taking things to a ridiculous <laughs> level. The pizza lobby was very active. Here's another thought, uh, which I like, love your view on, and that is material constraints. I remember discussing... Uh, a massive project that was touted for Australia to export electricity via submarine cable to Singapore. It's still on foot, I think, to some degree. Uh, one expert told me that for this project to be achieved, there would have to it would consume all of the cable manufa- the undersea cable manufacturing capacity in the world, you know, for for a year. <laughs> and as he said, if you think about it, that can't happen. I mean, and this argument applies generally. Uh, as we trim, as we as we move from fossil fuels to renewables, we become dependent on other materials, which also have environmental consequences. You know, lithium, uh, cobalt, nickel—these minerals which make up the components of batteries. In other words, are we simply replacing one set of problems with another? 
I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's several parts of the debate. One is the what I would call the renewables or substitutes for fossil fuels are actually much, much more material dense, is the way I would put it. Mm. For instance, wind turbines require an astonishing amount of steel and copper. And, you know, they also require things which are very difficult to find, like rare earths for the magnets. Mm. And, and to bring it down to a very common example, electric vehicles require six times more materials than an internal combustion engine. Mm. And that's the first thing is they need that. And then there are two issues that relate to that. One is, okay, we have to extract those minerals. So what are the energy needs needed to produce those? And what is the overall net effect on emissions? Because you might get lower output from the energy sources, but you have to adjust for the higher amount for the required materials. And it's almost impossible to get any sense out of this because I've spent the better part of 10 years talking to people who are supposed to know. And every time I ask the question, I get a different answer. And there is the other issue, of course, is are those raw materials that we need to shift the energy sources, are there limits to that? And there is absolutely convincing evidence now coming out that we don't have enough of this stuff. Mm. We just don't have enough. Leaving aside the environmental costs, the pollution, the difficulties, and also there's a perversity. I'm not religious, but uh, if you're religious, you would curse whoever the great deity was because they put all these minerals in politically unstable places around the world. So, And a lot of them are in China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what do we do? How do we get that? China controls a lot of rare earth processing. And so you're absolutely correct. We just trade one addiction for another. It's like going from a heroin addiction to a methadone addiction. Mm. Short of discovery, a new and inexhaustible supply of um, of energy, abundant energy, cold fusion, perhaps, which we've never got to. Where do you think we are headed with this, Das? Well, I think this is going to go through a very complicated long-term process, which will have significant geopolitical repercussions. And I think you you can split it into stages. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You remember Kubler-Ross's famous five stages of grieving? Yes. I, I think it's pretty much that. And the first stage is what I call the deal stage. And this started in 1990 with the Rio Earth Summit and probably before that is essentially this was a debate. Okay, we have a problem. So what do we do? And so essentially the whole thing got locked into this process of the Kyoto, uh, what was the Rio Earth Summit, which became Kyoto, which became, you know, wherever, because it changes every year. Mm. And this was about, people trying to come to an agreement on the basis of dubious treaties and politicians and lawyers were trying to deal with something with no understanding of energy markets, physics or economics. They were trying to sort this out. So all that happened in that first phase was a whole bunch of well-meaning philanthropists and the usual grifters, you know, the investors, the tech entrepreneurs, the NGOs and consultants got involved. And that phase sort of muddled along, but it's now coming to an end. And I think there's a very important part uh, that the Ukraine conflict played in that. Because suddenly when energy prices shot up, 
they suddenly everybody sort of got interested in this. And so what they now are saying to the policymakers, well, we can see the problem. What are you going to do about it? And now we're sort of in the second phase, which I call disillusion and desperation. So essentially, there is a realization that things are slipping out of control. Mm. And the optimism built around the what about solutions, I used to hear, and what about, you know, this, and what about this, and what about that? That's actually now evaporating because everybody's sort of looking at each other and they know in their heart of heart the reality of the predicament. That, that this may not be able to be solved. It, this is a problem which will not be easy, certainly, to solve and mm. it won't be cheap to solve. And now with extreme climate events and interruptions to normal activities, that's brought it to a head. And what people are now realizing that there is minimal progress on slowing emissions and climate change, despite everybody carrying on about what they're doing. So that becomes now a problem and people realize that an energy disruption is coming and all the rollouts will not be quick enough and on the other side, there's now going to be concern about slowdowns or peaking hydrocarbon productions, which is what we're talking about, the limits mm. on some of these fossil fuels. And we're now seeing business and investor support for the energy transition diminish. I was very interested in Europe, to see in Europe after the farmers' protest, they roll back a lot of the emissions issues. And we're going to see that over the next few years. That's going to happen. And the tensions between advanced and emerging nations are going to boil over. And people are going to become very concerned that all this money that is being spent is not getting anywhere. No. And the most interesting thing is, uh, in many ways, the Green Party in Germany is sort of a kind of a litmus test of this. The Green electorate in Germany has split into two. There's one half that think that green is getting too brown because they're getting too close to fossil fuels. And the other one saying is they're doing too much because it's pushing up energy costs. So there's a complete confusion in this process. And that will lead, I think, to increasing focus on all sorts of weird and wonderful things based around technology, because essentially we believe that technology can solve all problems and really ignoring the fact that we are terrible at managing some of the side effects or even understanding all of this. And so what will happen is we'll experiment with things like nuclear, with newer types of nuclear technologies, and there'll be more money thrown at things like cold fusion and all sorts of things. But gradually, this will give way to disorder and dis divide. And what that will happen is that people will not be able to meet their expectations of what energy needs need to be met. I'll give you one real example of problem. Mm. Nobody seems to realize this, but the security apparatus globally is one of the biggest single consumers of energy. When you fly a B-1 Lancer from the United States to bomb a ragtag army of Houthis in, in, uh, somewhere in the Middle East, that aircraft is consuming around about 15 liters for every mile it flies. And there are other issues here as well. Saudi Arabia uses 15% of its oil to power its desalination, which it, without it, there's yep. no water. <laughs> so all of these things, people are going to start to get into these panics. That's and right. going to get, and, and uh, in and, a sense, with the, with the opposition, the growing international movement against globalism, the, the global approach is going to be less and less able to be easily achieved. And we shall be reduced to warring nation states 
Perhaps. Yes, exactly. We'll start mm. to fight over oil, which we've always done to some extent. Mm. And eventually, the realization will come, probably not in my lifetime, is that energy demand must fit available supply. That's right. <laughs> it, exactly. It, it, it's oh. going to have, and this, is, this goes by a wonderful name. It's called the theory of constraints. So basically, every system is constrained by its weakest link in the chain. And in our case, it's supply. Mm. And so we're going to have to arrive at a completely new energy equilibrium. Now, the problem with that is that's not going to be at the level of energy consumption that people have assumed. No. And to a large extent, the real problem is going to be the divisions in the world because the societies with energy and the societies without energy are going to be at loggerheads. And I think the geopolitics will start to become very, very significant in that process. I think that's probably so, right. I think that's probably right. So, Das, we'll have to leave it because time has beaten us, but um, it has been a most interesting discussion. We've been talking to Satya Das. Uh, his, his Energy Destiny series of articles can be found at nakedcapitalism.com nakedcapitalism.com Das, always interesting and thought-provoking to speak with you and I thank you for your time It's my pleasure You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast For more great conversations about the issues that impact you as well as features on travel and food head to the Nightlife webpage You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife 